you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 27, verse 57. Matthew 27, verse 57. Why I believe in Easter. Why do you believe in Easter? There's good reason and good cause to believe in Easter. Easter is about life. It's about truth, the truth of God's Word. It's about the guarantee that we have been forgiven of our sins. That Christ has paid the price. But still many still don't get Easter. A couple of weeks ago I showed a video of an interview of people and what they believed or what they thought Easter was. And most of them really didn't know. Some of them simply could say it's about God, it's about Christ. But most people really didn't know the meaning and the purpose of Easter. Reminds me of that little boy one time. Uh, who was in class in my previous life? I was a school teacher, and every once in a while, I would have a child who would always raise his hands, and you knew he didn't know the answer. He would just raise his hand before the question got started. He was just in severe need of attention, and he'd just be raising his hand. And this little boy was kind of like that. His name was Johnny, and any time the teacher would ask a question before she'd even get out of her mouth, he'd be raising his hand, going ooh, ooh, ooh. But problem with Johnny was usually wrong. And not only was he wrong, he would usually embarrass himself, and the other kids would laugh at him, and then he would just get frustrated. So the teacher was trying to be nice, and so she would usually try not to call on Johnny, particularly when she was pretty certain he wouldn't know the answer. And so she decided this day that she would ask them some questions about what were certain holidays and what were their meanings. And she started with Thanksgiving and Johnny, of course, immediately raised his hand. Ooh, ooh, ooh. But there was another little girl that raised her hand, and so the teacher called on her, and she said, the meaning of Thanksgiving is a time where we come and we give thanks for all that we've received and for all that our forefathers endured, and as we remember how God has been good to us and blessed us. And she said, that's amazing. That's, that's exactly right. And she said, what about Christmas? Again, Johnny, ooh. Another little boy raised his hand and she called on another little boy and he said, uh, Christmas is about the birth of Jesus and how He came to earth, how He came as a man and lived here and then died. But he, it's the time that we celebrate His hope and the joy of Christ coming to earth. She said, that's exactly right. Well, then she asked the question, what about Easter? And again, Johnny this time stood up in front of her and was raising his hand. She couldn't. Pretend like she didn't see him. And so she said, okay, Johnny, what does Easter mean? And she said, and Johnny said, well, Easter is about Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, who was crucified on a cross on Friday, but then three days later He rose again. And she goes, that's right. That's incredible, Johnny. That's exactly right. That's wonderful. You're, you've done such a good job. But Johnny wasn't finished. She, and he said, and... After that three days, when he comes out of his hole, if he sees his shadow, then he goes back in for six more weeks for winter. Some of us are kind of like Johnny when it comes to Easter. Sometimes we miss what it's really all about. This morning I want us to look and discover why we should believe in Easter. Why we should believe in the resurrection. Why it is our hope. Good Friday, they nailed Him to a cross. And what should have been a continuance of agony 
on Sunday became a time of ecstasy. On Friday it was dark. But on Sunday morning it was light. On Friday, the old method was nailed to the cross. The old covenant of the law was nailed to the cross. And because a new sacrifice had been provided on Sunday, the covenant of grace was established and exercised. There is hope. There is power. There is life. There is forgiveness because of the resurrection of Christ. Because of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Why is the resurrection of Jesus Christ important for Christians? Why is it the hinge pin from which our faith rests? Why is it essential? Why is it so important? Well, number one, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a clear demonstration of the one true God, of the power of God. The Bible tells us in Ephesians 1, 19 and 20, His incomparably great power for us who believe that power is like the working of His mighty strength which is exerted in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at the right hand in the heavenly realms. Number two, the resurrection is important for Christians because the resurrection proves that Jesus Christ is the Son of God according to Romans 1.4. Who thought the Spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the Son of God by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Number three, our salvation depends upon the faith in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 10, verse 9 tells us this, If we confess with our mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in our hearts that God has raised Him from the dead, you shall be saved. It's just a great capsule of the Gospel. We see the importance of the resurrection. The Bible tells us in Romans 10, we must have the resurrection to know salvation. Number four, our resurrection depends upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ, according to 1 Thessalonians 4.14. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with those Jesus who have fallen asleep with Him. That word, fallen asleep, anytime you see that phrase or that term, is a euphemism for death, for those who have died. And fifth, the power of Christian life today comes from the power of the resurrection of Christ. Romans 6, 4. We were therefore buried with Him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live this life. Now, what does it mean to have and experience the resurrection of Jesus Christ? What does the power of the resurrection really mean? Does it simply mean that once I accept Christ, and once I believe in Him, I get baptized, all my problems go away? All of a sudden, my children start acting correct. My wife thinks I'm wonderful. My husband uh, is awesome. And all of a sudden, all the money gets filled in the bank account. Does that mean that automatically happens? Let me tell you what really happens. This is what really happens. And this is what the power of the resurrection means. It means a transference of affections. A transference of affections. Let me explain it to you this way. Before I got married... My affections were pl and my time were primarily spent on me. 
Okay? I did what I wanted. And if this made me feel good, if this made me happy, if I wanted to go to ten sports games, I played in four sports leagues. If I wanted to watch ESPN for four hours, whatever I wanted to do, I could really do it. But when I got married, I had to have a transference of affections. Okay? And I had to come to the place where I would transfer my affections from some of my sports and some of the time that I watch television to my wife. But you know what? I willingly did that. Matter of fact, then I had a son. And where I used to still play sports, now I'm going to his sports games, okay? All of a sudden, I've had to have a transference of affection, and I am glad to do it. It's not that when we get saved and we receive Christ that we never have temptations anymore, that we never have a problem anymore, anymore that when you get married, you never have a temptation again. All your problems are solved. You still have them. The question is, are you feeding the affection of your relationship? Are you feeding the affections of Christ, your love for Christ, with the power that He has given you? Greater is He that's in us than he that's in the world. As we begun to feed our mind, as the Bible tells us, with the grace and the truth of God's Word, it begins to pour over us, and our affections begin to grow for Him, and our power begins to grow. What about you this morning? Have you had that time where you've transferred your faith to what Jesus Christ did for you upon the cross in the power of His resurrection? Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, if you have your Bible, turn with me there, the consequences if there were no resurrection. What would it mean for us if there were no resurrection? Well, let's see here, beginning in verse 12. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? You see, the Corinthians, in that city in particular, many of them believed that the body was evil, and there certainly could be no resurrection of the body. It was corrupt. And this teaching, which was very Gnostic in nature, had infiltrated somewhat into the church. And Paul is saying, no, there is definitely a resurrection of the body. In verse 13, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. He tells us right there that the preaching that you're hearing is a complete waste of our time. None of us even need to be here if there's no resurrection. And our faith makes no sense. He goes on and he says this, More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. All witnesses, preachers, and the Bible are all liars. All those who are preaching currently, who have preached in the past and will preach, are all lying. The Bible is a lie if there is no resurrection, according to the Apostle Paul here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. For we have testified about God that He raised Christ from the dead, but He did not raise Him. In fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Your faith is futile. Your faith is is that word literally means of no consequence, of no value. Your faith means nothing if there's no resurrection. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. 
They have perished. There is no eternal life for them. They are not with God if there is no resurrection. Whether it be St. John of the Cross, whether it be Francis of Assisi, whether it be Ruth Graham Lotz, Billy Graham's wife, whether it be Mother Teresa, whether it be D.L. Moody, C.S. Lewis, they've all perished and they all lived in vanity. But in verse 19 also, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. Christians are pathetic is the bottom line if there's no resurrection. If there's no resurrection of Jesus Christ, that's literally what the Word is saying right here, we are pathetic. We are wasting our lives, our times, our efforts, our resources, and there is no hope. This is all there is if there is no resurrection. So you see the importance of the resurrection. When someone says, I just think he kind of was resurrected kind of mentally, it was kind of a good thing that people kind of latched on to. Paul clearly tells us in the Word, our faith is vain. We have no faith if there is no resurrection. Now, let me give you 15 solid reasons why we should believe in the resurrection. And I've listed these for you, and you probably even have them on the back of your bulletin. Number one, the testimony of the text. The Scripture clearly teaches the resurrection. Church tradition We recited a creed this morning that started about 30 years after the crucifixion and has been used throughout history as well as several other creeds. Tradition tells us, as well as the early church fathers believed in the resurrection. There's good reason to believe because of the testimony of the text. The historical account from non-Christians. Now, let me say this right up front. No one really witnessed and watched Jesus physically being resurrected. Remember, after He died, He was placed in a tomb. And and a giant stone was sealed by the Roman government. And so nobody actually watched it happen. So sometimes you may hear this criticism. Well, we don't have any non-Christian accounts who actually watched that happen. Well, we don't have any Christian accounts that actually watched it happen. Okay? We have the accounts of those who saw Him die. Those who were not Christians who verified his death, when a spear was placed in his side, he, was, he died and was placed in a tomb. It was sealed. Those who were opponents, as we, as we will read in a few moments, literally, as they, as they quoted, uh, if he has the opportunity for someone to come and steal his body because he said several times he will rise again, this will be worse than the first time. Matter of fact, let's turn back to Matthew chapter 27, and let's read that. Matthew chapter 27. And you can see what Jesus' opponents believed He said, what they quoted Him as saying, beginning in verse 62 of chapter 27. The next day, the one after preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate and they said, Sir, we remember while He was still alive that that deceiver after three days said, I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be secure until the third day. Otherwise, His disciples will come and steal the body and tell people that He has been raised from the dead. And this last deception will be worse than the first. So Pilate said, take a guard. Go make the tomb secure as you can. And so they went and made the the tomb secure by placing a seal on it and posting guards. 
And then the Sabbath dawn came the first day of the week. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. And there was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven, going to the tomb, rolled back the stone, and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and the clothes were like white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. And the angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know who you are looking for, Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen. Just as He said, come and see the place where He lay. Then go quickly and tell His disciples, He has risen from the dead as He is going ahead to Galilee. There you will see Him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to His disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, He said. They came to Him, clasped His feet, and worshipped Him. Jesus said, do not be afraid. Go and tell the brothers to go to Galilee. And there they will see me. Josephus, who was a Jewish priest, who in no way was an advocate or proponent of Christianity, he was employed by the Roman government as a historian. And he acknowledges that Jesus was removed, that the Christians claimed that there was a resurrection and that the body was never produced. Non-Christian accounts that something happened to the body of Christ. Something occurred. And Josephus goes as far as to say many have claimed to even have seen Him. Jesus predicted His own death as we just read a while ago and His resurrection. And let it be known that those who opposed Him heard Him say it and were also quoted as saying He made that claim. The public official execution assured His death. The Roman soldiers were experts in death as they hung Him on the cross just to make certain, even after He had died, a spear was thrust into His side and He was verified dead. Number five, the Roman seal was broken. The stone that was placed in front of the tomb and sealed by the Roman government and guards placed by the tomb was gone, even though that was penalty of death. The tomb was empty. And many would say, well, they were at the wrong tomb. Somebody came and got him. If that was true, why didn't they produce the body? It wouldn't have been that hard to go to a few other tombs. Do you think they really would have let Christianity flourish if all they had to do was to go to another tomb? Grave clothes, according to John chapter 20, were still intact. If someone had stolen the body, they would have taken off with a body wrapped. They wouldn't take taken time to simply completely unwrap it and then fold them up in a nice, neat order and place them there upon the grave. The transformation of the disciples. Here are men who were so afraid that they ran and hid. And Peter denied him three times. But here, just a few weeks later, we see an incredible transformation. We see men that are willing to die for their faith. Eleven of the twelve, after Judas was, uh, after he was uh, taken away, of course we know that there was another disciple placed in his place, and they all died a martyr's death, except for John, who was put on the Isle of Patmos, who died in exile. Many of them horrible deaths. Would you really experience that if it was a lie? If you didn't believe it? The transformation of Paul is probably the most incredible 
proof of evidence for me because here's a man who believed that Christianity was blasphemy. That people were being deceived. It was like Jim Jones or David Koresh or even Bin Laden. That was the message that was being preached. And people were being deceived. And they were being led away. And they were going to spend eternity away from God. He believed they were committing blasphemy itself. So much that in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, he was a part of the first stoning of a Christian. Stephen was martyred. He was there. And then the Bible tells us in Acts chapter 8 that he sought to destroy the church because he was doing that in the name of God because he thought what was occurring was wrong. Something about a man like that who sought to literally kill and imprison others because of his faith. He was so converted, so transformed that he became the primary writer of the New Testament. He wrote more books than anyone else. He was radically changed. Something happened to him. And we know that that was the encounter he had with Jesus Christ. He went from destroying the faith to preaching the faith. The eyewitnesses' account that are given in 1 Corinthians 15, where the Apostle Paul says there were over 500 people who saw Jesus. You can see them today in Jerusalem. They're there. He didn't say, they're all gone. Most of them are still living. You can go and talk to them. Here is the most staunch opponent of Christianity who's been converted and who says, and there are 500 others who have seen Him. The early church consisted of Jews, and Jews were monotheists, as we talked about a while ago. The thought of saying God came as man, and the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, that was a radical change. Again, that was a blasphemous change. But yet, that's how the church started. Jews changed their day of worship from Saturday to Sunday. That was one of the Ten Commandments, to keep the Sabbath, the Saturday Sabbath, holy to keep that day. It defines Judaism even today. But they were willing to change their day of worship because it was the day in which the Lord God rose. Number 14, why would thousands and thousands and thousands of people be willing to die for a legend? You know, I love the story of Paul Bunyan, but all you'd have to do is bend my finger and I'd go, okay, I don't believe in that. (laughs) I give. I mean, Lord, you could do that for me for Douglas MacArthur, and I'd tell you I don't believe him if you bend my finger back. But would I go through a torturous death? Would I, as one of the apostles, be filleted? Would I be crucified? Would I be as thousands of Christians who were crucified and literally lit on fire, be willing to die for a legend? Or something I thought, well, it sounds pretty good. That's a good story. Or, hey, we've gone this far, we're just going to keep going. Would you die for a lie? Would you let your family die for a lie? Why would thousands and hundreds of thousands of people die for a lie and some still dying for their faith today if there was no power, if there was no resurrection, if it was not true? And last, people continue to be transformed today by the power of of the resurrection. Let me tell you a story about a guy named George. A guy named George, when he was four years old, his parents divorced. And when he was five, his father was killed and murdered. When he was about six, they lived in California. 
And his surrogate father was, was Jewish. And he began to take him to the temple. He began to uh, teach him uh, the Torah. And he was pretty faithful to go to the Torah each Saturday. Until he turned 13, it was time for his bar mitzvah. And George decided, this isn't what I want. So he began to uh, consider other options. And he decided upon meditation. He decided that he could kind of become his own God. And that God was whatever you wanted to make it. And all you had to do was kind of envision what you wanted and just kind of go for it. And that's, that's who God really is. And so that's what he practiced throughout the next seven or eight, nine years of his life, really, for, for a long time after that. He said, I remember when I was about 18, he said, I was actually in acting, had my own little television show. And I remember life was good, had plenty of money, had everything I wanted. And I remember saying, God... And I just said it. I didn't really pray because I didn't really pray at that time. I just meditated. But I remember saying God, and God was any higher being or any spirit you wanted it to be. But I said, God, you know, I know the great men all have had to go through difficult times. If you want to put one on me, bring it on. He said, you know, it wasn't too many years later that God began to do that. He said, and I went through a series of very difficult events. I lost most of my money, lost my career. Uh, I contracted a debilitating disease. Life has been hard. And we moved and we found ourselves in Texas. You know, I'd always been pretty skeptical and actually hypercritical of Christians and Christianity. You know, when I was in business and people would tell me they were Christians, I'd think, oh, whatever. Here we go again. He said, and I'd make fun of them when they weren't there. He said, but life got so hard that I recognized we needed to do something. So I went to a public high school. Matter of fact, it was Flower Mountain over here. And I asked them, uh, do you have a list of counselors? My family, we need, we need a counselor. And so I got this list. And the first name on there I saw was named Basham. And so I started to go see this guy. And after a few sessions, he told me, um, he invited me to, to consider maybe thinking a little bit more about God and claims of Christ. And he said, you, you need to go check out church and just hear these claims. And I thought, whatever. I've heard this before. I don't need to hear all this. I've had friends who are Christians. Whatever. I thought to myself, what do I have to lose? I'm, I, I'm in need. And the counseling seemed to be helping, so I came. So two weeks ago, he was sitting right here in the service. And uh, after the service was over, he came to me and he said, I don't know what's going on, but I was just sitting there. I just started crying. and It was like a good cry. And I don't know what's happening, but I feel like God's trying to talk to me. What, what do you think's happening to me right now? And I said, if you have some time, I'd like to visit with you. And he said, well, I'm going to have to leave. But I said, what about tonight? We're doing a thing called Dinner with a Pastor. Why don't you come back and be a part of that? So he took the address down and he came. And we had our time together. And later on that night, we had a chance to sit down and I went through the gospel with George. As I shared the gospel with him, he just started to tear up. And he said, this is what I need. And he prayed and asked Jesus Christ to come in his life and forgive him of his sins. And he transferred his faith from anything that he could do to what Christ did upon the cross and the power of his resurrection. And two weeks from today, right under here, most of you don't know we have a baptistry. We're going to baptize him and about five others. You know Why? Because of the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It still transforms lives today. What about you?
Have you made that commitment to Christ where you've transferred your trust from anything that you could do to what you deem as goodness or what you deem as right to what Christ has done upon the cross? Have you placed your sins upon Him and confessed Him as Lord? Believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead and received His grace and forgiveness. If not, I want to invite you to do that.